listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We're going to be looking um, at the book of Joel tonight. Uh, Joel is a prophet who spoke at a particularly hard time in the life of the people of God. So if we just want to open that book, we're particularly going to look at chapter 2. And really, this is part of a bigger thing that God's doing this year. We've called the overarching theme of this year, our subtitle as a church, our slogan, which is more than me. And more than me is the gift that truly does keep giving. There's so many different angles and meanings that are captured by that phrase. And I want to pick up on one that God has been speaking lately, particularly. Thank you so much. Fantastic. That's a lot more dignified than sloshing from a trough. <laughs> the idea more than me speaks of giving up a life that's, you know, sorry, of, of living a life that's more than just you, which is an answer to individualism, which we live with today. Also, more than me says that there's something more than just you in the world. It points to God. But there's another third meaning, which is there's more to me than I can see. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, this sense that God's imagination for you is greater than your own imagination. And often when we come to understanding what God wants to do with us, is that often we get stuck on the obstruction and not the overflow. We get stuck looking at, we want the things that God to take away, the negative things, but we don't see the positive of where God wants to take us. And so this concept of overflow is one that we find in Scripture, particularly all through the Old Testament in very pictorial language. Just some in the book of Joel. I've just picked a few, just from chapter 2. Particularly for a community which lived in the desert, which relied on crops. It says this, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. We get stuck on the famine when God's actually interested in the flourishing. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion, people of God's mountain, God's temple. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. In the biblical palettes of using pictures as language, rains are blessings. We're used to the fact that we just expect the supermarket shelves to be filled with food, but these are people who a drought would be devastating and deadly. So God promising rains is promising him to provide, is him promising to provide and bless And then it says, the threshing floors will be filled with grain. This is an overflow. Not just satisfactory, but an overflow. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. I particularly wanted to leave that last verse today, this sense I had as I prepared this sermon. I could have stopped it just above there. 
And it would have made the point that I felt God wanted to make today about overflow, but I particularly felt that verse, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, is particularly significant for some people here tonight. People who feel that there's been years of loss, blessings stolen, flourishing, taken away. And I really feel that what God wants to do for you is to repay the years the locusts have eaten. So we have this beautiful image of God not getting struck on the abstraction, but actually looking at the overflow. And the vision he has for our lives is actually for us to be people of overflow, to live in an overflow, but also to be people of overflow where we overflow with God's goodness and his love and his blessings, where overflow is something which spills out around us. An overflow is something which you can't help but getting splashed by because it can't be contained in a safe little container. But it's really interesting. The scripture links the concept of overflow to something within us. The first verse here, which actually is from Proverbs, I apologize for the wrong reference below it. From the book of Proverbs, it says, the hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent. It's talking about this link between our inner life and what's going on inside of us, or our hearts is the language that scriptures use for your inner world and what's coming out of your mouth. Our words are an overflow of what's happening inside of us. Jesus takes this and develops it in Matthew 15 where he says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. So we want overflow. People outside of the church want overflow. But what scripture tells us is that there's this link between a life of overflow, of blessing, of flourishing, and what's going on in our inner lives. So overflow is simply the overflow of the content of our hearts. We can't have overflow if there's not some kind of internal filling of us. It's like, to put it in pictorial form, here is an image of your life. You have an inner life. And out of that inner life, if you are filled with good news, if something gobsmackingly brilliant has had to, had happened to you, people who've just been engaged in this most incredible, elaborate engagement plan normally don't have any difficulty telling people about it. It's just like overflowing from them. When someone wins the lottery, actually, when they, actually people do keep the lottery quiet sometimes. But if you've had incredible good news, you want to tell people about it. It overflows from out of you. When your heart is so glad, your body starts to change. You actually smile. When you're angry and you have anger and frustration and stress inside of you, one thing that all you need to do is to walk from the normality of your everyday life and cross the white line of amateur sports. 
could be basketball, tennis, whatever you play, all across Australia, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, ordinary, mild-mannered people turn into utter psychopaths. <laughs> Tech foul, a nudge here. This is netball, not footy. This anger, that may have been said to my wife at one stage, um, <laughs> that this anger just comes out of people. I've seen that on sporting foot. It's just like, where did that come from? That had nothing to do with this game. Road rage is another one. Someone cuts someone off and just this psychotic anger comes out of people because inside of us, the inner content of our lives eventually will overflow. So whether it's positive or, or negative, our inner lives overflow. So if our inner lives overflow, the content then of our lives is really key. Scripture tells us to guard our hearts, to see what's actually coming in. Now, there's things which we can't determine are coming into our lives. Much better. You've had experiences which have been done to you. You may be in proximity to things which have happened, which have been like an input into your lives. So there's things that are beyond your control affecting you. But then there are things which we can choose and have will over deciding what comes into our lives. So the inputs of your life, how you spend your time, what you choose to put your focus on, what you choose to consume, determine the content of your heart. The information you choose to consume, the relationships you choose to be around. I've said it before, the studies are incredible on this, that basically if the five most important people to you, who you value, put on five kilograms, you will put on five kilograms. If the people around you who are most closest to you lose five kilograms, you will most likely lose five kilograms. So you just need to get the people around you to diet, not you. But the people around us shape us because they have tremendous control over the inputs of conversation, of, of how they act. We will mimic them because we are social creatures. What we consume. In a world of choice, we can choose what to consume. Put into our inner life. The experiences that we choose to have are a form of input. The things that we focus on, as we spoke about last week, determine this inner world. So all of this begins to shape us in our inner lives. And one of the difficult things is when we get to a season in the church's life where we realize that we're not experiencing overflow. It happens at different stages throughout the history of the people of God, but you realize there's seasons of renewal and movement amongst God's people where his power is overflowing, and it's overflowing in the lives of individuals and families and churches and cities and countries and continents, and other times where it's not there. Now, we can look at that, particularly at this moment, so that's just where the culture's at at the moment. 
But really, when you look into this, Joel is writing at a time when the culture is going through a tremendous pressure. And instead of turning to some great cultural engagement strategy that the people of God must undertake, of how to connect with the broader world, Joel realizes that the essence of how we change as the people of God begins in that inner space. Joel says this, rend your heart and not your garments. Rend is an English word, but it's an old English word that we don't use that much. It means to tear, to pull apart. And what he's speaking about there is this sense that when people, Jewish people then and still today, mourn, they go through a period of mourning and they'll often rip a piece of their clothing. And this is a sign that mourning is occurring. And what Joel is saying here, don't just do something which can be seen on the outside where you're just going through the motions and claiming that you're mourning. Understand that your internal world, your heart, has been filled with inputs which are not pleasing to God. And actually, we can look at the outside world and everything that's going on outside, but that's not really where the game is being played. The action, in a sense, is in the human heart because the center of anything that goes wrong in the world can be traced back to the human heart. So we need to change our hearts, turn our hearts. Don't rip your garment, rip your heart in mourning. We'd almost say today, have a broken heart over our own brokenness and the way that we've had inputs come into our lives which are pushing us away from God. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. And I talked about, over the last couple of weeks I've been preaching through this series, that we've been in this phase, and some of you, this would have been new, others would have this is all you would have ever known if you've been to going to church, grew up in the church, or been in the church for the last couple decades, where we wanted to find the spot where we could stand if there's some line between the culture and Christianity, and we wanted to get as close to that line as possible in order to be relevant or accepted or culturally acceptable. But in doing that, in many ways, we stepped over. And so I think we're entering a new phase of what God is doing now, where that game has now passed, and he's now calling a new people to a new posture, because he wants to return us to overflow. So to render hearts, to return to God, to disconnect ourselves from the inputs which have distanced us from him. When we change our inputs, we change us. If you want to change, you need to change the inputs that are coming into your life. And one of the key ways that we do this, and we're coming up to, this is a talk, next week we've got Josh Butler will be here, but I wanted to talk this week for something that will be happening, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent. And you may have done Lent before, your whole life could be new to it. 
But essentially, Lent is a period of preparation where we fast in order to, in a sense, set ourselves apart in preparing ourselves to remember Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, which means that our hearts are changed. And on the third day, he resurrects and comes into a new world that he is creating, and he's then moving towards overflow. No longer do we have to be separate from God. When Jesus died on the cross, we have new life in him. When we receive the Spirit, the Spirit can come and live in us. And so we prepare ourselves for this through a holy fast. Joel, in chapter 2, after seeing the problems in the land, gives out this emergency call to the people of God at this time. The land has been invaded by foreign forces. Its potential to overflow is destroyed. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 11, despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, the fig is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the fields are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. And so he calls this out, Joel 2, 15, Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Two bits in there I want to point out. The first one is he declares a holy fast. That's not just a fast. It's a holy fast. That means it has a purpose. It's not people fast outside of the church. There's so many different uh, uh, Diets that are popular now, and this one, and that one, and intermittent fasting, and all that. It's all popular now. But this isn't just a fast to lose weight or for better health. This is a holy fast for spiritual health. But it's more than just individual spiritual health. This is actually a fast because the idols of the land have taken the people captive, and for them to return to God through fasting, they have to slay the idols of the land. The phase of being here and how close we can get is over. We are now at holy fast time, and God is calling a people to declare a holy fast to slay the idols in the land that have people captured and prevented from living lives of overflow right here, right now. God is saying no more. No more are you going to see potential thrown away. No more are you going to see possibility laying dormant. No more are you going to see overflow on the shelves. No more am I going to see a generation of people in the world who I've created for a purpose, who I died on the cross for, stuck and imprisoned in a codependent relationship with the idols of the land. So Joel says... Gather the people, get them out. Let's do this now. Now it's a phase shift. Something's changed. We're on a different time scale now. The time that has been going is now over. Something new is happening. So let's get the people, get them out of their houses. Let's gather. 
and consecrate the assembly. Consecrate means to wash clean, to take on a process. This is language that was used of the priests when they would go into the temple and they would clean themselves and step into the holy presence of God. But this language is saying not just a priest to go ahead. This is not just the job of one person to do this on behalf of everyone. Now it's actually the time of the assembly, all of the people who call themselves the people of God to be consecrated. Consecrated means to be made holy, to be set apart. And there's something so bizarre happening at the moment. And I think as someone leading, I get this experience where people contact me. And I've had conversations with people from our church, from people from other churches in Melbourne, other countries in the last two weeks, text messages, emails, phone conversations, where people unconnected to each other I literally had one after the morning service this morning. People unconnected to each other have come to me and said, this is so bizarre. It almost makes no sense. But I feel like I need to give up this. One person said, I need to give up TV. I just binge. I don't even know how long that's for, but I need to give up TV because I actually need to create some space in my life. Another person said, there is nothing wrong with... I've actually had multiple people say to me, I've never thought I would ever do this. There's absolutely nothing sinful or wrong with it. But God is actually calling me to give up alcohol. Not through a sense of religiousness, not because there's anything evil. Anyone who drinks alcohol is evil. But for me particularly, God is calling me out. One guy I met with, not from our church, said this. I said, why why do you think God's saying that? And he said, because I realized that I drink to fit in. And now God wants to be, to be in a stage where he wants to shape me for a period where I don't fit in. And when I heard that, I'm like, this is a face shift from everyone trying to fit in and every Christian trying to prove that can be like everyone else to now we're entering into a new phase. Now hear me, hear me if you do not hear me. I ain't saying anything of these things are wrong I'm not putting that on anyone. I'm just pointing out that the Spirit is calling individuals to step out for a period right now and to step out of the metrics and the measurements of the culture's standards and step into a consecrated assembly. Because what fasting does is fasting actually changes our inputs. Fasting cuts off some inputs. And again, they can be things which are negative, which you need to drop permanently. But they can be things that are actually fine. Food is actually fine. And yet we fast from it because when we do, we take control over the desires of our body, which will run us. Unless as Paul encourages us to do, to bring them under control through the power of the Spirit. When we say no to something, we create space for something else. So fasting is an intentional saying of no for a bigger yes. This is saying no for the overflow. And you don't get to the overflow with a whole bunch of little compromises. 
because compromises actually lead back to obstruction. The second thing which I think God is doing at this moment is that God's calling us during this Lenten period to fast, but he's also calling us to do something else. And we see this in Joel, Joel 1 verse 14, and I like the messages reading of this. Round up everyone in the country, get them into God's sanctuary for serious prayer to God. Serious prayer to God. The other phase that we're coming out of is not just this phase, it's the phase where stand as close as you can to the line, and if you're still going to be serious about your faith, get into a church, and again, too, no one means to do this, Red's done this at times, where our Christian life is purely just getting more head knowledge. So let's be as cool as we can and go to a church which is fairly cool, who just gives you good head knowledge. And we watch the sermon, and the sermon engages with us, and we learn a bunch of stuff, and we watch the person, and we listen, and we sit back, and we consume. And our heads get bigger in the age of information, but we need to be people of transformation, not just information. A.W. Tozer said that how sad it is today that people have given over their personal pursuit of God to their teachers and preachers. And so in that, like, what do you think of that church? Oh, that person is, is great who preaches. Have you heard of preachers? Fantastic. That guy's awesome. I'm going to download that podcast. But we're now at a stage where God's like going live action, where it's the preach word, it's the prayed word, it's the worship spirit at play, and all are working together because we don't just need more words, we need power, and we need word and spirit operating together. So it's a new phase where your prayers count. It's not just people with Bible college degrees or clever words or dropping some illusion from some Netflix series to that, the book of Joel. What it is is actually your prayers and your worship all play as much of a part, if not more of a part, in the stage where we're going. And where this goes is the link between overflow. After Joel speaks of overflow, he then speaks of another kind of overflow. We have this imagery of earthly overflow, of vats of wine spilling over and fresh harvest of grain, full stomachs, full grain storage rooms. But then he moves to another kind of overflow, which is the only kind of overflow out of which we can live, which is the only input that we truly need, which is why we fast, which is why we pray, because the primary input that we need, that Jesus has made possible in our lives, is the Spirit. And Joel goes on to say, I will pour out, and listen to the language, pour, this is pouring overflow language. I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just the teachers and preachers, not just the religious superstars, but all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. 
Notice they're not seeing problems. They're seeing possibilities. They're not seeing obstacles. They're seeing overflow. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now that was a promise in the time of Joel. Israel was being overrun by a foreign army. And he was pointing hundreds of years into the future. And yet we see in the New Testament, we see in the New Testament when Peter speaks after Pentecost has come, what passage does he talk about? Now that Jesus has died on the cross. The disciples are waiting in an upper room. And the Spirit gets poured out. And it's crazy. It's like Eden is happening again. Babel is being undone. People are speaking different tongues. The church is empowered. This is now a group of disparate, powerless people in an upper room all of a sudden become the empowered people of God. Amazed, perplexed, they ask another, what does this mean? The Jews outside who are gathering around hearing, they've come to Jerusalem for a, for a pilgrimage and they're hearing their local languages spoken and they're seeing people falling about and some people are going, this is mad, they're drunk. And they're asking, what does this mean? And what does Peter say to them? You know what this means? This is what Joel promised. This is what he spoke about. That I'll pour out my spirit. God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Peter tells them that that day is now. And we now live in that moment where the Spirit is now accessible and it is designed to be the primary input into your lives. And God wants to empower you. He wants to baptize you and bless you with His Holy Spirit. He wants you to come to an awareness of seeing that you have the Spirit in you. When we pray the oldest prayer as we do at the end of our services at Red, Come Holy Spirit. That's not inviting the Holy Spirit in because He's not here. He's here. He's in you. It's us coming to awareness of Him. So what God is asking us to at this moment, and I felt this as I was preparing for this talk, that God wants to move at this time. This Lent has a seeming extra importance placed on it at this strategic moment in what God is doing. Out of the blue on Wednesday, I got a text message from my friend as I was thinking about all of this. And he said, I feel that God is calling his church, another church, he's in another country, another church which is in another continent to his country, and red church, just four churches, to together Fast and pray. Fast and pray. And so this Lent, I think God wants to do something big and he wants to do something big amongst us and he wants to expand your vision for who you are and what he can do amongst you. But to get there, we have to defeat some idols that are in the land. So we're now going to move into that space. We're going to let the word move amongst us. We're going to ask the band up. And we're going to step into a space. So let's stand. 
And let's ask that prayer. Come Holy Spirit.